Hello and welcome to the Worldwide Friends podcast. This is Tim hosting in the chair today, and I'm going to be talking to a very good old friend of mine, uh, Ian. Uh, how are you doing today, Ian? Hi, Tim. How are you? Yeah, good, good. Uh, uh, so, yeah, we've known each other for 20 years, which is almost a prerequisite for us to be on the podcast as Worldwide Friends. Uh, where are you calling me from today, Ian? I'm calling you from just outside the United States capital of Washington, D.C. I'm calling you from the old city of Alexandria, Virginia. Alexandria, VA. And uh, what, what's happening there this morning? Tell us about the weather and what you've been up to. <laughs> well, I think we're just about to get out of winter, um, little by little. It snowed yesterday, but uh, it should be warming up a little bit today. It's kind of that kind of tumultuous time right before spring. Um, but um, there was a break in the cold, so I decided to go for a run this morning. Um, I try to run at least every weekend. Uh, about a half marathon, give or take. And whereabouts do you run? Set the scene for us. Yeah, sure. So, so where I live is just outside of uh, Old Town, Alexandria, and uh, I live uh, halfway between the the Old Town of Alexandria, which has all kinds of cobblestones and whatnot, and is mm. um, I think you you would say is somewhat reminiscent of a, an old English town. Yeah, um, very much so. Yeah. And then it's halfway between there and then um, Mount Vernon, George and Martha's place, as we call it. <laughs> um, so I run along the Potomac River um, between the two, and it's it's beautiful. It's actually a national park, so it gets federal funding, and it's really well kept, um, just this strip of land um, along the uh, the river. And for those that don't know, yeah, it's you're great to run in all seasons. It's the first home of uh, George Washington. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, George Washington. Uh, Mount Vernon. Mount Vernon. Mm-hmm. Okay, so me and Ian, we met way back in 1998 at the University of New Mexico. Uh, wow, what memories. So the idea really is for us to get in the, the time machine and cast our minds back to 98. So what, what year did you start in? I mean, it's a long time ago. Do you remember when you started at UNM? Oh, let's see. mid um, I guess. Yeah, 96, I believe. <laughs> 96 yeah so we are the same class i started university in 96 too and the campus is fabulous uh it's really sort of the highlight the center of the city it's an adobe pueblo style campus uh with a lot of facilities the alumni investment that goes into the place is very good and did where did you live you lived in the dorms you lived all over yeah um in the beginning was the dorms right uh, i think when we met i was yeah. living in in the dormitory, like there's like two, two. I bounced around those dorms. Yeah, <laughs> I, I lived in like two or three different dorms there. Um, but uh, eventually, I ended up living on a street called Tijeras. Yeah, and you had the best living situation. Yeah, we got lucky. We got the dream flat right across the street from the campus, next to the Frontier Restaurant, which is an Albuquerque institution. It's a 24-hour diner. It's about a block Amazing. long. Amazing. Yeah, tell us a bit about it. Remind us. The Frontier. Wow. It's yeah. Just, I don't know. Green it's chili. It's still up. You know, I was back there a couple of years ago. It's still there. It's still doing well. Uh, Frontier Restaurant. It looks like a giant go. barn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like the outside is painted like a giant barn, yellow and red and white. And 
they just keep expanding. They buy like the buildings next to them. And uh, yeah, it's really a very interesting phenomenon. Do you remember they had a giant portrait of John Wayne that was all yeah, cowboy. Yeah, but it was and made I'm of a... nails. You remember that? Uh, yeah, and they had a big horn as well, like uh, bull horns and a lot of southwestern motifs. And it was the place in the city that everybody goes from like the the gangbangers, like the the Mexican criminal influence, to like the lawyers, to the academics, to the students, just whoever you are in Albuquerque. You go there to get a green chili cheeseburger. Yeah, you know, and I'm surprised they didn't make it into Breaking Bad. You know, they had so yeah. many, uh, they had so many um, sites near there that were yeah. uh, made it into the film, but the, that restaurant itself didn't get in. There, the, there's uh, medical soul where he's in a similar cafe, and it did confuse yeah. me. But then I realized it's not the one, is it? The one where he no. has meetings. Well, it's one up. up. Yeah. Yeah, there's one called. Um, I think it's called Manny's, which is uh, just a little bit further east of the campus. East, okay. So when we first arrived, we were under real pressure to find an apartment. And I think we made the wrong choice. Like me and two great friends, Gaz, another friend of the pod. How you doing, Gaz? He, uh, him and I and Phil, we moved into a really sketchy, sort of dodgy apartment on the north side of campus, which was actually somewhere you're advised not to live. And uh, it was full of like crack dealers and a... Uh, sort of a rougher influence but it was very convenient because it was only a 10 minute walk from campus but they said never to walk it and there was a bus there was a bus that ran in the day uh, yeah we, we lasted three months there and then we got the dream set up the apartment the bachelor pad type apartment behind the frontier cafe which became like a magnet like you'd be around all the time a lot of friends would come around yeah very uh very great place to live i mean <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you could roll out of bed and be in your lecture in two minutes. I used to work in the the pool hall in the sub. You worked in the sub too. What what was the sub? It was the like this <laughs> building. I worked my way into upper management of the sub. <laughs> you started your I, career there. Well, I I was a building supervisor, so I, I uh, would um, oversee all the events in the sub and would lock it down and open it up on weekends and whatnot. <laughs> It was a, that was an interesting gig too. I had a, there was a sofa in our office and an alarm clock, and I said, "What's the alarm clock for?" And that's like, uh, "Well, that's so that you can wake up." <laughs> what? So apparently, uh, <laughs> they want you yeah, to sleep. But... Napping was just fine, so you would go in on the weekends and take a nap, yes. and then yeah, and then wake up when an event was closed and shut down the building. So, but, so uh, it was like was right context. next to the the main road, the University Boulevard. Uh, yeah, it was the big building. Central. Where they had... You were on Central. Central. Sorry, yeah. Central. Yeah. yeah, yeah, baby. And uh, the sub building is right there, and it was like a lot of a big food court, an American style food court, where you could. There was a subway, I believe, and a pizza place. Did you start possibly in one of those eating a stuff? Oh yeah, my my story <laughs> working my way up to upper sub management was. Uh, <laughs> I, I I started from the bottom in the burrito uh in the burrito section making burrito makes with yeah. nx con yeah. <laughs> yeah i remember that uh, i had a place south of campus which was not so convenient and uh when i first moved out of the dorms i was sleeping on the floor of this place which was probably in the area you're describing that one should not be in <laughs> and uh i would bike up every morning at 6 a.m and go make some burritos in the summer and uh, my hard work paid off, and I moved into the building management division. <laughs> <laughs> you were, yeah, you always seemed very busy at that time. I mean, 
we were exchange students. I, I got a job. I had the job working downstairs in the basement of this aforementioned uh, sub building, uh, which was a great place to work. It was about 20 pool tables and uh, it would never be that busy. So my job was just to go there at 8 a.m., open it up, play some pool, drink some free soda. There'd be like some very cursory admin responsibilities. But yeah, I mean, the salary was bottom of the barrel. But in those days, it was OK for 98. I think it was like 575 an hour. Maybe it hit six. Sounds we may right. have got a raise. <laughs> And so, there yeah. was a movie theater right yeah. next to your, your um, uh, pool hall. Uh, did you ever yeah. see any movies there? Yeah. And, and yeah. me and Paul went to a fantastic exhibition there that he still talks about to this day. It was like a sci-fi art exhibition. And he'd come to visit from Louisiana, from LSU, where he was doing his year abroad. And uh, yeah, he re- we thought it was awesome. It was a really cutting-edge little uh, exhibition. Yeah. What movies did they show there? I'm struggling to remember. I, I can't remember either, but I just always remember it was a thing. Um, and then across from that, it seemed like there were—I know I bought some CDs. I feel like there was—they they tried to have a music store there, yeah. but I don't know that it really worked. And yeah, and um, no, I do know—I do remember now. Yeah, I used to do—we did film studies classes, uh, me and guys and film. We'd go there in the evenings to see screenings of like great uh, black and white film noir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty awesome. Sunset Boulevard. Uh, what else? A few of those other classic uh, noirs and hard-boiled fiction films. Mm. So yeah, that was a good time. And I remember being drawn. Yeah, where that music place was, there were some Scientologists once, and they were trying to like con me to. And I bought their book for about a dollar, and then they were going to try and sell me into Scientology. Luckily, I didn't do it. <laughs> but as a as a, <laughs> a young man away from home, I was possibly vulnerable. First time to live away from home. But yeah, so that was not a bad job. What would you say is the worst job you've ever had? Like a the student worst job. job. A student job. Yeah, like did before. you work in a McDonald's or below the burrito stand? I did work in a McDonald's, but I wasn't. Uh, that wasn't at U. Well, I was at UNM. That was uh, when I was a young man, just trying to make my way. I was about sixteen. Sixteen, and where was this? This was upstate or downstate New Mexico. It was downstate. Um, so in New Mexico, like, I think that the wealth kind of falls the water. So the further north you go, like, the nicer it is. Like, you've got Santa Fe and stuff like that. House is just, dream. Yeah, yeah, it's house. Yeah, some, some beautiful. expensive real estate. But, uh, yeah, I was a little bit further south in uh, Los Lunas, um, uh-huh. which is, um, it's very New Mexican. I don't know how to put it. Uh, <laughs> I guess. Mountain uh, town. Know, Desert town? Uh, no, no mountains. Um, if you think uh, through Breaking Bad, yeah, um, there there are some moments like uh, the scene where is it Chucho? I don't know. I think that might Chucho. be his name. The guy with the boxing gloves for a necklace. The gangster. He's yeah, and he decides he's going to kill the two um, uh, main characters, and he takes yeah. him out Chucho to a Salamanca. desert. Yeah, Chuco. That's it. Right. And he takes him out to a desert in the middle of nowhere. That's uh, that's very close to where I lived. <laughs> so, um, anyway, and there yeah, was another scene, yeah, there. yeah, flipping burgers. Yeah, but yeah, thinking back to Tuco, there's another scene where it's at the end of season one, I think, where Walt ends up going, and there's a like a big load of cars, like abandoned cars. Oh and yeah, it, uh, yeah, I've, I'm sure I've been there. I've seen that. 
and uh, being very close. I know close where that there. area was mapped to. I don't know that it, it really matches up. Yeah, but it might it be. It's uh, south of Broadway, so it's just south. Yeah, of, it's on the way to where I was describing. Actually, if you were, if you'd continue yeah. another like thirty minutes past that, that's where I was living. Down south. But yes, south of Albuquerque. Yeah, yeah. And in that scene, he ends up there's some kind of altercation, and he accidentally like shoots or injures this guy. And he's trying to tell Walt to do CPIs, like do that thing, do that thing, do that, do that thing. And uh, Walt is becoming progressively embroiled more and more in these dark events, which is what season one and season two are really about. So yeah, obviously we're huge fans. And by coincidence, because when we were in New Mexico, Breaking Bad was nowhere near even in existence. It hadn't been conceived of. But we went to some of the locations. There was there the scene where Jesse Pinkman, where his girlfriend dies i believe we went to a party there yeah <laughs> it's crazy huh yeah. yeah um as somebody from new mexico it just feels like they really were able to capture the vibe of yeah, the stuff i really lived did. through like, and if you yeah go on well well until the, until there was uh until there was breaking bad it was kind of like you're from new mexico oh you know do you need a passport to go there and like people just didn't really get it they thought it was a part of mexico they thought it was quaint and poor and they didn't get the kind of grittiness of new mexico the wild west that was associated with the cartels and stuff like that and breaking bad really managed to capture that it's very much there it's a part of yeah and in breaking bad is officially vibe. the highest critically acclaimed series of all time uh, yeah. According to the aggregator sites, Metacritic, uh, The Guardian also, and Time have put it up there as being the, the all-time number one. And uh, yeah, for those that haven't seen it, it is just a fabulous story, very dark story of a depressed, meek, unfulfilled chemistry teacher, Walter White, and how he gets drawn into drug dealing, basically. He gets a diagnosis of uh, fatal cancer, and he realizes he's going to need a hell of a lot of money, and his brother-in-law is in the DEA, Hank Schrader. And he takes him on a ride along and he slowly gets drawn into the idea of cooking and selling meth with uh, Jesse Pinkman, who was like a dropout, uh, but quite talented chemistry student from his class. And it really yeah. goes from there. And the cinematography is just fabulous. The desert and a sort of sense of surreal darkness, but shot uh, in very bright, wide lenses. So, yeah. That party. It's interesting to see how it's it's crossed paths with us in so many. I like I, I don't know about you, but I've definitely been in like like you said we were we're in one of these houses where uh, it was where the girlfriend OD is is yeah the, Jane. Is the location yeah and that's yeah. that's one of one of these the series is really set up with these tipping points where Walter gets steadily more and more irresponsible, more and more criminal. I mean the idea is he starts yeah. off as Mister Chips and slowly becomes Scarface. So yeah, he lets her die. He watches her die. And in that moment, you start to realize maybe you shouldn't be empathizing so much for this guy. So, yeah, that's where it happened. It was, it was like a little apartment, I guess. Well, it's a little duplex. They took one of these adobes. Um, like, like you were saying, uh, the, the campus is adobe. And the original motif of most buildings in, um, in New Mexico is adobe. Um, I, I grew up living somewhat in adobes. And uh, this is one of them. This is like a split into half, uh, like a duplex. So... You know, he was living on the one side and the girlfriend was on the other side. And I think that the party we were at was the one where he was living. And um, I I don't know, but I feel like Gaz was there, too. Most of yeah. the party was outside. I <laughs> In the back, yeah. There would be a, a big space there, like a courtyard. Yeah, yeah. Kind of a dirt kind of area around um, the side. It was, uh, it was off of coal. 
Um, Coal Avenue, yeah. Because, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, Albuquerque was great for house parties. It was really, that was the sort of student scene. People would organize parties, invite a lot of people, get some cakes, get some food. I mean, we must have been to dozens and dozens of parties like that. Yeah. Hmm? I, I think I, I got to a point on uh, on weekends, I would just drive around and look for parties and try and crash <laughs> And there were often really good ones that would just pop up because the other bar scene in those days wasn't so great. Did, did it improve? Did the city change in the time? Because, I mean, I left around 99. I would have gone back once. But uh, did it, what you left in 2002, was it still very much the same? Or it, have you been back and noticed any differences? Well, um, you know, I've changed a lot as, since then as well. So, yeah, you know, see it with definitely was running around looking for parties. But, um, <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, it has changed. Um, a lot has changed. I think two two major things I noticed have changed. Uh, one, you know, it gets now. There's a lot of money from the movie industry that comes to New Mexico. They do a lot of uh, movie Bad. processing and production um, stuff like that. That was always a bit of a thing. So. Um, it, it really has developed, and so there's more service industry there. There's a lot more like um, breweries and uh, microbreweries, restaurants, fine dining. So you, don't, you don't need to drive around looking for parties, perhaps, now if there's more entertainment infrastructure gone in. Yeah. For the today's undergraduates. But yeah, I haven't been back because, I don't know, one of my dad's great friends before he died, he said, Paradise Revisited is fatal. So I prefer to keep it there in my mind. But yeah, we will have to go back one day, definitely. Maybe cross, cross New Mexico on Harley-Davidson's or some kind of classic car. Well, the second thing I want to say that has changed is the, uh, the environment. Like, uh, I mean, right. the, the, there's always been a water problem. There's been a water issue. Albuquerque didn't take uh, it seriously. Right. I think the United States doesn't really take... Um, most of these environmental things, seriously, that's my little soapbox. But, um, but yeah, there were there's, there's, horses in the desert when I was there. Yeah, and without a second thought. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a book I think it's called Cadillac Desert, which really talks about the water issues between Texas and New Mexico, fighting over the water being diverted from the Colorado River. And um, you know, things have not necessarily gone well in that regard. Um, there's still water up in Santa Fe, up in South, but in Albuquerque, it's. Uh, the zero scaping thing where, where there's no grass and people just try to decorate their lawns with rocks and stuff. That's uh, it's really kind of come into its own. So, so it, it seems looks quite different. Yeah. I see. And yeah, the people are, it's a very cross-cultural place. You've got the, the mix of uh, Native Americans, Anglos who settled there very early and people who even trace their blood back to Spain. I mean, I live in Spain these days. I'm here in Alicante. This very nice early spring Sunday. And, uh, but there are people who claim that their blood is not Mexican as such. It's more directly from Spain because of the Camino Real, the Royal Road, went all the way up to Santa Fe, I guess. Well, yeah, I think it's, it's famous in Española, that, that area. They, uh, well, I mean, the town's name is Española, so like a lot of them say that they're <laughs> Spaniard descendants. And, the, you know, yeah. they're skinned people, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. It's an interesting... Uh, conflict between uh, that that still goes on today that uh, you don't see in other parts of the united states of uh, having these direct european ties versus indigenous ties versus recent immigrant ties the 
the border issue in New Mexico is a little more complex than it's portrayed on, uh, on TV. I've been interested in politics for, for a while. I've been interested in nonprofits for a while. My mother was an ESL teacher. I think that's something also that we share in common is both of our mothers are teachers. And um, your mother was an ESL teacher also. Or an yeah, a little bit. She was kind of a jack of all trades because she started off as a drama teacher. Like she, I know that when she was in high school, she worked at J.C. Penney's um, and then would do drama. That was her thing. She would do drama and J.C. Penney, and then she tried to figure out how she could do drama and get paid for it. And eventually, that was uh, teaching uh, high school drama, high school. And you know, the narrative in the United States is public funding just gets cut again and again and again and again. And that we're starting to see that all over the world stuff like that but the um i'm sure you guys had it too right with thatcher and everybody coming out of yeah it's a similar trend yeah so um so so she had to kind of take on other roles to to, to do that so first it was drama then it, she got certified for art and then it was uh, english literature so she started teaching literature and drama and then uh, when we lived in turkey um she was teaching drama um art and english um and ESL at a point in time. So to work with, so she worked with the uh, the military, teaching the children in the military. And to get one of those jobs, um, one has to be able to be certified, uh, U.S. state certified in uh, multiple fields. So um, yeah, she did a little bit of ESL. It wasn't really like her, her main focus. Her main focus would be drama and um, American literature. But, uh, but yeah, I remember seeing her teach ESL when I was a kid. And thinking, oh, I can do that. <laughs> and uh, years later, uh, it turns out to be true. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, yeah, you, you've that, done that it all around China. the world. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I, you know, my 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 past in politics um, made me uh, interested in getting a master's degree, serving further in nonprofits, and trying to um, access politics that way. Um, while studying about nonprofits, I felt that uh, perhaps it would be better if I worked for a union um, where the, the way that the funding was handled seemed to be a little bit more upfront. And I liked that piece of advocacy that the, the money, the dues were being collected from members instead of, um, you know, benevolent overlords donating things. Uh, and, um, yeah, yeah, sure. And, um, <clears throat> and eventually... Um, I decided that uh, I crossed paths with Paulo Freire and I decided that uh, it wasn't just about uh, organizing people because I was out organizing, living in a hotel with a bunch of people on a Spa all Spanish speaking campaign, organizing uh, undocumented workers and whatnot. And uh, everybody was coming to me asking me for lessons in ESL at the end of the day in the hotel. So it's like... Uh, I, and, and I'm struggling in the daytime to go and knock on these doors and speak completely in Spanish and be, you know, taken seriously by uh, by workers. A lot of them wouldn't open the door when they saw the color of my skin. So uh, it was quite something to consider. And then Paolo Ferrari came to the table and I thought, hmm, you know, this concept of conscientization really seems to make sense. So I spent some time um, doing uh, more kind of functional um, community style ESL and uh, learned the trade and. Uh, then, you know, when when it came time to actually make a living, it seemed that that was the way to go. And I'd done that for quite some time. That did uh, end up taking me to China. Um, I applied for um, a citizen advocacy program with the State Department. And uh, they sent me to 
China, Mongolia, and Thailand, where I um, went around doing teacher trainings and representing um, American approaches, approaches to English as a second or other language, or in that case was EFL, right? Um, but more yeah. like teacher-centered type stuff, or sorry, yeah, non-teacher-centered no, stuff. <laughs> Okay, let's go back to the union organizing bit. So tell us okay. about this, this this very influential figure that you met, and in what cities were were you doing this? Influential figure that I met. Yeah, you were just mentioning a. Uh... Oh, Paulo Freire. Paulo yes. Freire is a. Uh, I, I never met the gentleman, but um, he wrote uh, he wrote especially well at least three books, and he's out of Brazil. Um, yeah, right. I, I read. Yeah. Yeah, we've lived, and and he was um. He had gotten a grant, I guess, in Brazil to to create a literacy project, and his literacy project was uh, very student centered. I mean, it was it was really interesting where uh, people were serving each other and developing their own needs, and he was creating a, a corpus from the people that he was supposed to be helping, and he found that there he was much much uh, it was much easier to teach them uh, to um, literacy when when they were engaged in the development of the content that they would be uh, studying and so then there was this piece uh, that that bridges and kind of connects with the uh, critical theory um that that he wrote about in his book um, pedagogy of the oppressed so teaching, yeah, we were talking about your the pedagogy of the oppressed and all the teaching you've done and teaching for migrants. But you, you taught in China. How how was that? I mean, tell us a little bit about living in China, because you didn't go to Shanghai. You went to like proper back of beyond China. Yeah, the, the program I worked for, the English language uh, fellowship um, places people in uh, different countries from the United States, uh, people with teaching history. Uh, specifically in English language acquisition, and um, and it, it's a little bit like the it's it's a little bit like the Peace Corps if you've heard of the American uh -huh. yeah, concept of sure. the Peace Corps. So yeah, I, I wasn't in uh, mainstream uh, China. I I was in a major city, but uh, the people in China often compared to Detroit. They say Detroit to China. <laughs> Detroit to China. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So very so industrial. industrial. That, that's where a lot of the medicine was developed back during uh, Mao's time. Um, so the strong universities there would have to do with producing medicine. It's also where a lot of the automobiles were developed, and, and they still are. Uh, most of right. the automobiles are developed there. Audi has a big presence there. Buick has a presence there. Um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, it's also a lot of rice comes from that region as well. And... Um, so you'll get uh, from time to time seasonal um, smog uh, developing from yeah, the, exactly. the rice fields being burned, um, farmers burning through their fields all in unison, and along with some of the, the pollution that would come from the, the factories. Yeah. Not the cleanest there. I mean, I know what you're saying because I lived, I spent two years in uh, Chiba, East Tokyo, the East Tokyo megalopolis, and the air quality there wasn't great. And also just the feeling of really being in a massive industrial zone. It's sort of hard to shake that feeling. I would always be longing to get out to the ocean or trying to find some greenery. Did you, did you find that? It was quite oppressive to be stuck in, in a big industrial Asian city. 
Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, it's funny what they call a town is like several million people, right? So, <laughs> right. Um, Small mean, town. It's, it, it's on a different scale. Um, and that can be quite intimidating. Um, well, yeah, claustrophobic at times and oppressive, but it has its moments. Did you live on campus or where did you live? Well, <laughs> foreign teachers um, are, are treated in a particular way in China. So, if, if one is a, I'm sorry. You had a, a more privileged status. People looked up to you as a, a foreigner who's gone to work in China. Uh, not necessarily. Not necessarily. <laughs> no. <laughs> in Japan, um, that's the case. Maybe not in China. No, but yeah, I think that that's how it's painted. But that's not really what I've noticed. Uh, we're just treated as different. And the word that they use is Lao Wai, which I think is something about ghosts or something. Uh, foreigners. Um, yeah, in Japan, are other, it's Asian. Gaijin, yeah, far enough. Okay. And so we, you, you say when you were in Japan, you were you were treated better, or? Yeah, but like you were sort of treated as an object of fascination in some ways. You could never be Japanese, and you would never really want to try because it's such a massive cultural step. I mean, it's so far removed the culture. But yeah, you were kind of given some some privileges for sure. I mean, you. Would, Doors would open sometimes, but at the same time, it did feel kind of odd at times. You felt like an animal in the zoo almost. People would be looking at you. But yeah, the people are great as well. I think in China, maybe it's even more pronounced. So did you find yeah. it ambivalent? Like there would be ups and downs to being the other. Well, there were times where I would describe my uh, my outings in China as the Matrix because I would walk down the street and just everybody would turn and look at me. It was like a, a wave, a ripple of looks that would just follow me. Yeah, and, especially uh, in remote areas. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, remote, and, yeah, I remember, right? Like, like it was really yeah. densely packed with people, but uh, remote geographic as, poultry. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So we were uh, just north of uh, North Korea. So there wow. was also some the Korean border, the North Korean border of China. Yeah. So um, there was also uh, I'd have some students from North Korea, but not many. But uh, there, there were a couple who were quite privileged for North Koreans. They were the the upper echelon of of North Korea. You could imagine if they were given such independence to come and study in China. Yeah, um, they were the elite. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. So they were good students, I guess. We they were, were good kept students. Separate from mainstream, like so. If I wanted to get a house off campus, that was quite difficult. I'd have to really overcome some hurdles. So you um, were back living on a campus, but you you weren't driving around looking for parties this time, in an old white car. No. Yeah. <laughs> Those days were over. That was a different era. But yeah, I mean, what was the social life like? It's like a twenty-year to... difference. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you get to meet a lot of people as the foreigner, as the American, uh, working for the government? I did, but I was always kind of treated as a representative of the government. I kind of took okay. that pretty seriously. I didn't want yeah. to uh, mix too much. I, it's, <laughs> I did kind of feel like I was, I was always on. There was never really much downtime. I ended up hanging out with a guy from Zimbabwe and a guy from Australia. Um, and uh, that that was pretty fun, but um, but yeah, as far as campus life goes, I was constantly like the American teacher representative, so. the quiet American. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
But uh, what about the students? Were they good learners or were they quite a handful? Uh, I mean, I, Japanese yeah, were, were very diligent, but they didn't want to take risks in the language. So that made the language acquisition very difficult because they weren't willing to make those errors. And we learned through making mistakes. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe the Chinese are a little bit less self-conscious. They've got a very forthrightness about them as well. But I guess they're very hierarchical too in the classroom. Yeah, they had their own elected uh, representatives. I forgot the, the name of it, but the, each student class had someone that, like, you know, I think all young people have these student governments, at, you know, in, in, in high school, but this followed them through through university, and it was very much used. So if the students were unhappy with something, they would talk to the leader who was appointed, and then that person would come and speak to the teacher, like, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, but this isn't working for us. <laughs> Pretty funny. Who go up the so, chain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but uh, as far as learning, I think they're just different types of learning. I think the Chinese are very good at rote memorization. They can memorize tomes and then produce them in a speech. The worst thing you could do is is to say, okay, we're going to do research on a topic, and I want you to present to the class because all those yeah, go and memorize work. something. Yeah. <laughs> so I always kept the topics very personal, which was really hard. Like you know, communicative approach. Your, first time doing this or doing that yeah yeah classic communicative approach but sometimes they wouldn't want to go forward with that information it was quite hard to teach them how to think creatively that's a whole other challenge i guess but they, they were bright i guess they were studying for university they were very educated people they it's very different from what you do have been doing recently and i've done as well teaching migrants that's a completely different ball game i guess well, I switched it up again. I mean, I was teaching migrants for a little while, and now I'm back teaching them bright people trying to get master's degrees from all over the world. So, yeah, you know, it's never a dull moment in this game. You just kind of yeah. go with the flow. Yeah. Uh -huh. And there are lots of similarities. I mean, I've taught in eight countries, including the UK, and uh, there's a lot of similarities and differences. But I find, yeah, I've taught more business English and exam preparation and general English. and Japan was very different. Asia is very different, but Brazil, Spain, uh, Australia, I really see the same kind of people often. Mm. And yeah, it's very communicative and task-based learning. Uh, but yeah, we don't want to bore people too much with our education <laughs> hats on. <laughs> so yeah, we're gonna. What else are we gonna talk about? We talked about Breaking Bad, and you know, the, the just on that, the, the movie's been confirmed. It is being was in the Albuquerque Journal. That the production is going ahead, and the working title is Greenbrier, huh. which is, I think, it's the part of Omaha where Saul, uh, where Jimmy ends up oh. uh, in Better Call Saul. And there's the flash forwards. The flash forwards take place in black and white, and he's working in a Cinnabon in a mall in the back of beyond in Omaha, Nebraska. So there's going to be a connection to that. It's going to be what happens to Jesse afterwards. So it's described as a sequel to Breaking Bad. So what happens? Did he escape when Walter came to rescue him? And where does he go from there? And then that will link somehow into the story of Saul. So that's one to be excited about. But I think we're looking at next year for the release. Sounds great. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, we get to go back there one last time to the Breaking Bad universe. And also, no, that's not true because there's still more Better Call Saul in production, I believe. The fifth season is yeah, right. yet to come out. So hopefully the good stuff will 
will last and push forward into the future. So yeah, what else, my friend? What are you doing this weekend? You're, you're busy with the studies, I believe. Yeah, but like you said, you don't want to bore people with education. I got, I got lots of education, stuff education, education. Yeah, yeah. Um, just trying to work through a doctoral program in um, curriculum and instruction. So I study a lot um, on uh, on how people are learning, approaches to learning, what is learning. Um, and uh, the, the, the program is not focused specifically on language. We have a lot of different people from uh, many different backgrounds. A lot of it is uh, K-12, so I'm kind of the odd man out because I do more adult ed uh, type <laughs> stuff. Um, so they'll yeah. be talking about how to engage, you know, fourth graders. And I just really don't know much about that at all. So. Um, and you bring some of your Chinese experience to, to bear in your research and stuff, you can link back to that at times, or it's not directly relevant, perhaps. No, but uh, China, I guess um, the, the thing that I can connect with there was the teacher trainings. So teacher trainings in China were um, really kind of opened my eyes because before China was doing more politics. Yeah. Well, I can't say before China. Um, before I got into teaching, I was studying politics and in Because, yeah, you I finished was... New Mexico in 2002, I believe. And what did you do after that, after you finally graduated? Because I know you were some time to graduate. You did a double major and all that. So what did you do at the end of it all? Take, tell us the story. In 2002, you, you drove out of town? Uh, yeah. Yeah, in 2002, um, I graduated finally. And... So I graduated and I packed up a white Nissan Sentra that I bought through a friend of a friend. Um, a good friend of mine was working in uh, media sales for a local television station. Yeah, in this, uh, tough industry. yeah, in New Mexico. Wow. Yeah. And his friend um, uh, made a deal for me because he, he was uh, making commercials for him. And this guy... Um, sold me a car. I drove that car straight to, to Illinois and began working on a political Chicago. campaign out there. That's a long drive. Yeah, it's like it two, three days, something like that. No, I drove straight through <laughs> all the way through. Yeah, I think it was me and like six Red Bull. Um, <laughs> I, I, I drove through Oklahoma in the middle of a really heavy storm that ripped a windshield wiper off of my car that I had to duct tape right. back on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh made it to Chicago. Um the home, if uh, if anyone knows about politics in the US, it's really the home of the democratic political machine. Yeah, and, Obama. Uh, well, uh pre Obama, we're talking about Daly, Richard Daly. Yeah. Machine policy. So in that time, Obama was uh, was running a senator uh, campaign, and it was really well financed. I remember that, and they would pop in on our our um, organization from time to time and give us a hand or just observe. And uh, it was interesting. They were always the faces in the back of the room. So what were but, you uh, doing? Were you working on a campaign, or you were? Yeah, I was campaigning. Yeah. Uh huh. And what was the campaign? Yeah. It's a congressman. Yeah, uh, was congressman. Uh, it was a congressman representing um, the. I can't remember the number of the district, but it was all along uh, the Mississippi River, 
Yeah. And then we also would do some work for uh, Rod Blagojevich. I'm sure you've heard that name. Yeah. He uh, he's now in prison. <laughs> he was the why, governor why? of Illinois for a he while. Was the, yeah, he was the governor. And he was yeah, busted. He was trying to sell the seats for Obama. Yeah. yeah. Feel free to Google him. It's, uh, it's quite funny. He tried to um, get on a, a celebrity um, reality show as well after all of this. <laughs> This interesting guy, yeah. Yeah, that's the way to go for a lot of politicians. I mean, recently you had one. I mean, he, this is not a politician of that ilk, not so serious. Uh, but the Mooch, Scaramucci, he was on the Big Brother type thing recently also. And they tried to get Stormy Daniels to be on the UK Celebrity Big Brother, but wisely I think she pulled out because she may be involved in more litigation with Trump. So I think it was good that she didn't do it. But this guy did it. How did it go? Did he? He, kept he tried name. to do it, yeah, but then because they were going to send him to an island outside of the U.S., and so they're worried about flight because he was being indicted. So, <laughs> oh, I was yeah, outside I think, the states. Yeah, yeah, it was going to be one of these island things where it's you know they try to figure out how to get off the island or something. Uh, I don't like know. Escape I, I don't have much more information on it, but uh, uh, I'm going to try and guy. find it. I'm, I'm a big fan of reality TV these days. I've sunk to the level of watching X on the beach, which I think is quite hilarious on its own terms but anyway so that he he was jailed so then uh, you were working on this campaign for the other congressman how long did that go on that took you through 2002 2003 yeah yeah those those days I was I was all about politics uh, for about two years and then uh, ended up uh, in DC um, <coughs> interning for a congressman from New Mexico um, on the hill and then uh, did some work in uh, non nonprofit advocacy would be the best term for it, uh, working to kind of change the tax cuts, which uh, <laughs> has not the gone Bush very tax well. Cut. Yeah. <laughs> that was the big Bush tax cut, and now there's another one. Yeah, I mean that's another Republican presidential thing they do. So bring what, in these what were you tax doing cuts in those, in those times? So like 2002, were you in Japan at that time? No, I was just pre-Japan. So yeah, I worked in advertising and media buying. We're talking about media sales. I worked in media buying in London for a while. And then in 2003, I moved to Sydney, Australia. I did the, the CELTA course to become an English language teacher. And I, yeah, I went down to Sydney, uh, which was, yeah, it was as good as New Mexico. It was one of those mind-blowing experiences that has made me make my home outside of England from forever onwards. Mm. Yeah, I mean, really great place. A lot of Asian students. I was, yeah, I was teaching a lot of Chinese, coincidentally. I was doing, preparing students to go to the University of Sydney. So they had to do IELTS and uh, academic English, EAP, English for Academic Purposes. Big yeah, class. I, I was a rookie. It was pretty yeah. tough. I mean, I, was, I had no real experience. So it was a lot of in at the deep end learning. But it, it was great. The lifestyle, the people. Like, yeah, I mean, I know you have connections with Australia as well. It's a, Quite a place. Well, my, my connections with Australia are really old. I mean, it was like three years old when I went there. Like, gosh, it was really my yeah. father. Yeah, my father was obsessed with Australia. Yeah, what was the thing he used to have? A butcher's. Sorry? A butcher's drink, like a little shot of beer or something. Was, uh... Yeah, oh, yeah, some, some story <laughs> that he told about a small, it was, it was less than a pint. It was almost like three quarters of a pint. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. But I'd say for, yeah, gone. 
Yeah, I'd say for me, probably my biggest experience living abroad was Turkey. That's, that, that's where I went to high school, you know? Yeah. Um, we, we did discuss a lot about my connections to New Mexico, but I mean, I, my mother lived in Turkey for what, like at least eight years. And then I spent at least three years, maybe more um, in, in Izmir, uh, beautiful yeah beautiful town coincidentally last night on spanish tv they were showing the turkish oc boy did it look glamorous like it's a turkish sort of soap opera like one hour a week sort of dallas mm. type thing but it's set in a beach area south of istanbul and it's yeah i mean it's a very beguiling place somewhere you'd probably think about moving back to uh one day yeah um but like a lot of places in the world, there's some political turmoil. I mean, yeah. my current country included. <laughs> so it's mm -hmm. like, um, yeah, the rise of the right, populism, Turkey's a textbook case. Yeah. But I don't know, you know, I was talking to somebody recently, they said as a foreigner, you, you can live a neutral lifestyle there as long as you don't get involved in any political organizing. Well, uh, we can just we've keep just your discussed head down how... and make money. We've just discussed how I am connected to political organizing, so I don't know if that'll go too well. <laughs> <clears throat> the quiet America. No, I think you'd be fine. Depends what you're there for. If you were there to run an education program, that would be something else. So moving around, you um, you were recent. What was the country you were most recently in? Well, I'm in Spain now. I've moved to Spain. Uh, coming in before the Brexit, I wanted to get established here. I was a year, just under two years in Portugal, in Lisbon. And then before that, I was four years in Brazil, which is like my high holy experience. That was the best for me. But yeah, unfortunately, due to the economic situation and the political uncertainty, I made the decision to leave Brazil. But it's never somewhere you can really leave. It's with me forever. But Spain just about uh, fills the gap. Very nice. And uh, so you're, I, I think you just moved to a new city in Spain, right? Have yeah. Yeah, I've moved to Alicante. I was in Madrid for a while, and Madrid is fabulous, and it is the place to go if you want a job immediately. Like, it's a, the biggest, I think it's the biggest EFL, English teaching market in Europe. So there's a lot of good schools, good money. But the, the climate is very harsh, and unfortunately, I'm a bit of a pussy for cold weather these days after the four years in Brazil. So I didn't adapt that well. So, I, yeah, I decided to switch bases and move to the coast, which is, yeah, I mean, this is a really good part of Spain. I'm just hoping I can get it all really rolling here, but the coast, Alicante, the Costa Blanca. Nice. Well, you mentioned the harsh conditions. That's, I, I had my trial in China for sure. That yeah, was, go on. <laughs> Just, I think commonly, it was even worse. We, we commonly get to minus 20. And yeah. I think it went all the way down to about minus 40. Yeah. Um, and in that time I, I went to, uh, so my, my wife is from Kazakhstan, um, so yeah, I did visit. Yeah, which renowned for extremely cold winters and hot summers. Yeah, and I did visit Astana several times, the capital, Astana. it's a big yeah. city. When, when I think of it, it reminds me of a set from Hollywood in a very specific <laughs> movie, and that Hollywood set is, uh, so it, I, I don't know internationally if this is a famous movie, but in the United States it's really well known, um, it's oh. called The Wizard of Oz. Um, and uh, the, the original Wizard of Wizard Oz. Oz, Dorothy, and the Tin yeah, Man. Right. Yeah. Seriously, yeah. it's a very so old the film. The original. Yeah, The Wizard of Oz. Wow. So let me let me get there. So in The Wizard of Oz, <laughs> uh, there's the Emerald City, and so when she's walking down the yellow brick road and she looks up, 
there's a scene there where you can see this big there's all these skyscrapers and what looks like you know crystal uh -huh. this and that and it's it's green and shimmering and that's very much how downtown um Austinaw looks um they would so have brands banking new extremely new modern built exactly right yeah and they they even had competitions for um, architects to design these fancy outlandish buildings to be produced there and um, Turkey won a lot of those competitions. So there's some very interesting and unique buildings there that, uh, I mean, they just look like a fancy new style cigarette lighters or something. You know, like, I don't know how to explain the buildings. They're really quite- And you went, you went in the winter and the summer or what time of year were you there? Just winter now, which was funny. That's what, actually, that's what, what started this story is, I thought, okay, so, you know, Austin, is going to be so cold, you know, like it's going to got to be like minus 50 yeah, or something. But, however, it was warmer than where I was in China. <laughs> Hot as balls. Well, no, no, yeah. sir. Um, but in China, it was, uh, it was like minus 42. And then when I got to Austin, there was a blizzard, but it was like minus 30. So, you know, it wasn't quite as bad. Um, you, you've got to have all the gear for that weather. You can't just, I mean, you, you have to have central yeah, heating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, before I, I central heating. But you, you could have very good heating, coats. Yeah, gone. Didn't have good heat. Wait, no. Some of that I, I did have, some of it I didn't. <laughs> so before I headed out to China, um, I dropped a pretty penny on, on outfitting. Um, definitely <laughs> made an investment. Suited um, up in pockets. Yeah. I got a Norwegian parka, downfield Norwegian nice. parka. That must have cost water and a leg. Boots. Yeah. Yeah, but you the full need, nine yards. But you, you really have to have that. I mean, um, yeah. Like if if I've I've learned from my wife that uh, a big part of life in Kazakhstan, especially where she was living, is um, something called a shuba. Uh -huh. And you have you have to have this. It's extremely expensive, and it's What's one of these true? giant fur coats, and uh -huh. they they cost about a thousand dollars. But you have to have it. Bucks. Yeah, if you don't have it, then uh, they're they're freeze. pretty damn toasty. They keep you warm. Yeah, that's what you get. Yeah. Would you wear them indoors? I mean, in Madrid, I'd be often no, wearing a coat no, indoors. So, like so that's the interesting thing in in Kazakhstan. Now, this is not the case in China. They're extremely different. But mm -hmm. in Kazakhstan they had this really interesting heating setup coming from, you know, Stalinist um, uh, city planning where the, the, the heat was centralized, not only in the building, but in the city, you had these giant water pumps that would pump hot water throughout the city and it would keep wow. um, the streets warm and it would keep the buildings warm and uh, you couldn't really control it. So often people would just maximize the heat setting. So, you, you'd you'd have to wear this massive like bear of a jacket outside and then take it off and walk around in shorts once you get so the heating the situation was pretty good yeah i mean that's what i really missed in madrid there is not often a lot of the buildings don't have heating a lot do but with the housing shortage it's hard to find a place with heating so it's really the dream to come in and get down to your shorts or your underwear in the middle of winter that's really living but i guess that wasn't the case in china no, that was not the case in China. And I really loved it when I got to Austin because we would have the window open for a breeze. You know, I mean, it's minus 40, but we have the window <laughs> open for a breeze. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, China, no, it was rough. Um, actually, you know, I don't want to go too into detail, but it kind of became a bit of an international incident where I purchased a, a space heater and plugged it in in my, my dormitory, where, as, as I do. said earlier, they, they, they separate yeah. the, 
they separate the Lao Y. So I have to be in a special space that they've allocated for me. I'm not allowed to go off campus, not allowed to have my own place. So I was in this dormitory for international people. They often put the international students and teachers like, did you together. share it? Because an English dormitory makes me think of like a long line of beds, like boarding school or something. Like uh, close, not quite. Yeah, it's close. But for, you know, because I was a professor, they would give me my own space, but I shared a bathroom. Um, right. So I had okay. my own like mini kitchen, which they don't have ovens there. Like you get like a microwave, which was pretty fancy for them. And then um, you'd share like a really kind of awkward bathroom. I don't know if you've seen like the traditional Chinese bathrooms, but it's like yeah. garden garden hose in the- All in the wall. Giant. Yeah with a garden hose for a shower. So it's kind of like, <laughs> you know, but yeah, that's that's part of the joy of teaching abroad. I mean, I don't want to sound yeah. like a, an outside American. Yep. Yeah, yeah, let's I mean, I'm fine with that. My apartment in, in Chiba, Japan, near Tokyo, was more installed than built. You know, it was just thrown up in very quick. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it did seem warm though. I had air conditioning and I lived there in 2004, five, 2004 was one of the hottest summers they ever had in Japan. Like it was a real global warming event. And I, it just was ridiculously hot. So I'd have the air con all the time. But in the winter, yeah, the insulation wasn't as good as I had thought. So I yeah, ended up getting bronchitis, pneumonia, all that stuff, which I imagine you wrestled with as well in the depths of industrial China. Yeah. Uh, so another investment, it seems like I invested a lot to be in Detroit <laughs> or China. Uh, another investment was an air filter. I had to have an air filter and I brought over a lot of uh, masks, construction masks. Um, Good work. That's what I needed in Madrid. I had a damp issue. I should have had a oxygen mask or a construction mask. Yeah. Well, and the air filter might have helped you as well. There was a there was a fellow who had been there before and uh, he was in Beijing and he had come up with this concept. Um, he was a Fulbright fellow, not a teaching fellow. And he came up uh -huh. with the, uh, he had done some um, scientific experimentation around just getting a, a HEPA filter and, and a fan. And then yeah. that could be turned into an air filter. And so he had it all on Taobao, what you would order, and uh, you could get an air filter for half the price. So I had two of those going, and then I had one traditional filter going at one point. Because um, the, the area where we were really was hit quite hard um, with, with the pollution. Um, but yeah. yeah, like it's, it's, it's a little strange because everybody seems to kind of say it's normal and then, yeah. know, like, but it's not and the American in me was like, that's not right. It's not right. Not right. <laughs> now in Madrid, they've just put in some big new rules cause they've had terrible levels of air pollution around in January. It was hitting almost China levels, but yeah, they've cut off the city center to cars that aren't produced after a certain date. So they're getting rid of like the really old, uh, noxious fume producing cars from the city center not the suburbs the suburbs are still problematic and it is having some effect already i think but yeah it's an issue air pollution is a big killer so it's not somewhere you want to retire in yeah yeah so yeah really it does make a difference go ahead that's yeah i mean there's a lot of issues for english teachers when you're living abroad it's not just about your job and being in the classroom it's also about yeah where you live where you sleep is a big thing for us efl guys goes but i think i think to be successful at it i mean it's got to be something you appreciate like uh, if yeah, i think back to like one of the coolest uh, bathroom situations that i've had 
was in Mexico when I was visiting the Raramuri, which are um, indigenous people of Mexico. They are not Mexicans. Nice. They're native people. Yeah. And uh-huh. um, they're famous for running, running the Copper Canyon. Um, and they'll, they run on uh, uh, used uh, tires. They'll take the tires. Cut Copper them out Canyon is, yeah, north Mexico, not too far from yeah. the border with Mexico. Uh-huh. Yeah, Chihuahua is the region. And um, yeah, the, w- there was a small town there. And, and, and we stayed with the, some of the, um, the, the people along the valley. And they had a really cool setup where um, for, for a shower, if you wanted to have a shower, you would build a little tiny fire in this hole that would heat wow. the, the pipes that would go through. So you built this little fire, got it started, and that would that would heat the, the water that went through and you'd have a, a hot shower. I thought it was pretty neat. <laughs> I mean, I've not really been to town in really cold conditions. We had quite a cold winter in Japan. I've just been through a nasty little winter in Madrid. But yeah, I've certainly done hot weather. When I was in Brazil, they had one of their hottest years, 2014. Uh, beginning of was really hot and we had no rain there was a big drought something to do with the amazon weather front being blocked and i remember i spent christmas in england where it was the wettest christmas they'd had for a long time the place was flooded heavily like freezing rain and then i went to sao paulo and it was baking but i i do better in heat i don't mind heat i quite like sleeping in front of a fan do you ever do that yeah that's a new mexico requirement right <laughs> yeah instead of having aircon because aircon is really bad for your lungs although american aircon is perhaps the best in the world it's not as bad but like brazilian aircon japanese aircon i always felt like it was killing my lungs but if you get the fan on it's it's okay that kind of works for me yeah they talk about the dry heat versus the humidity yeah yeah but yeah in the states you have crazy weather i mean huge continent very hot winters very Sorry, very cold winters and hot summers, but still, you've done it harder in China and Kazakhstan. All right, my friend, I think we need to start wrapping up there. So it's been great to talk about a whole bunch of topics here on the Worldwide Friends podcast, and we'll be getting back to you with a lot more. So thanks very much, Ian, for for chatting today. Yeah, my pleasure. Okay, until soon.